The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Uh, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Massimo, and I'm uh, one of the elders here at Gospel City Church. Uh, we are starting a brand new series this week uh, through the book of 1 Peter, and we titled it Hope in the Valley. And when we say valley, we mean the Klang Valley. Um, this year um, has been challenging uh, for many of us. And if you're struggling to live out your faith, if you're going through trials, if you're facing persecution, or if you're wondering and are insecure about how to live out your life as a Christian in this world, if you feel at times that you do not belong, um, then the book of 1 Peter is for you. Um, and God's word, word will give you hope. The letter's purpose is to encourage believers to hold fast and hold on while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. Uh, it speaks about how we are to live out the Christian life in the world, pursuing holiness as goodness, uh, model slaves, which would mean workers in the marketplace, um, gentle wives, and understanding husbands. Uh, the hope that Peter wrote about um, that encouraged the first century Christians encourages us even today. For we who are in the Klang Valley have this same hope. There is hope in the valley. So before we dig into the opening verses of the book, uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's a privilege that we do have your written word that points us to the hope of salvation that we have through the cross of Christ. Uh, this morning, as we hear your word, would you, by the power of your spirit, grow in us a faith and love for Jesus? Would you give us ears that hear and eyes that see, hearts that are open to receive, that will lead to obedient lives filled with joy? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As this is the um, first sermon of the series, we'll spend just a bit more time in the first few verses to introduce the book. It starts with Peter, uh, an apostle of Jesus. Uh, this book is written by Simon Peter, um, the fisherman that followed Jesus. He's an apostle, one of the uh, first 12 uh, who walked with Jesus. Uh, Peter was uh, the name that Jesus gave to Simon. Uh, Peter was the one who, when Jesus asked, who am I, answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus replied, on this rock, I shall build my church. Uh, Peter writes this letter uh, probably around 63 to uh, 68 AD from Rome. Um, when it's referenced from Babylon, he actually said it actually is him referring Rome, re referring to Rome. And this was during the reign of Nero. Uh, some say uh, that Nero is to, uh, set uh, Rome on fire, which caused about 70% of the city to be in ruin in 64 AD. Um, now, that is true, but when I say some say, it means that some say that it was Nero who did it. And Nero, whether he set Rome on fire or not, blamed the Christians for the fire. And Nero would begin heavy persecutions of Christians, and this letter is written either shortly, if it's 63, during, if it's 64, or after the fire, if it's before 68. And the, pers the persecution uh, was probably still sporadic and limited. Uh, but it did have legal dimensions as well. Christians would be under suspicions 
since their participation in voluntary associations like the Christians uh, was known. Peter uh, is writing to Gentile Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and uh, Bithynia, uh, which is pretty much modern-day Turkey. He also writes uh, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, just a bit of uh, history here. In AD 49, all Jews were kicked out of Rome, and that lasted for about uh, five years, um, and then they could return. Uh, but because of this, even Christian Jews were kicked out, which caused the Christian faith to grow in other areas. However, uh, when Peter writes to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, he is addressing primary Gentile believers in urban areas of the above said region. Um, they are believers due to the dispersion, but also due to the missionary journeys of Paul in these provinces. Uh, Paul went to Galatia and through the areas and, and proclaimed the gospel. Now, due to the Greek language that is used and the lifestyle that Peter speaks about later in the letter, we can comfortably assume that he was addressing Christians in cities. Also, the cities are where the, where the Christian faith grew in the early church. One important thing to note is the term elect exiles. They are exiles not because they have been exiled from Rome, nor are they exiles because they have sinned. In previous sermons, especially those in the Old Testament talking about the Day of Atonement or even in Genesis, we would have mentioned that one of the consequences of sin is exile. Sin cannot be in the presence of holiness. And though that was true or is true, and it was not the case here that Peter was writing to sinners who have been kicked out from the church community. community. He's not writing to that kind of exiles. Instead, he's addressing elect exiles. See, they are not exiles literally. They are sojourners because they are elected by God because their citizenship is in heaven rather than on earth. Believers are exiles, but not because they are displaced from their homeland. Instead, believers are exiles because they suffer for their faith in a world that finds their faith off-putting and strange. Now, if you're from out of town or from another country or maybe even have lived overseas for a while and now came back to KL, you'll be able to relate. Peter uses the term exiles or sojourners to indicate that they are not where they would call home. So if you know what it means to not belong in any way, um, this feeling is what he is comparing uh, why he's using the word exiles for. Uh, the only essential thing to mention is that this feeling um, that you do not belong is not because you are from another town or country, but because you are a Christian. If you as a Christian feel comfortable and not different than those you work, play, socialize, and live with as neighbors, you may not be living in obedience to your faith. And a Christian life is identified that it is different than the rest of the world. Yet it is not secluded from the world, but in the world. As an exile, uh, there's significant uncertainty. Often there's no financial security uh, because uh, there has not been, not been accumulated uh, through generations. Uh, you will be persecuted because you're different. It is difficult, not just because of the external pressure, 
But as Jay Green says, we do not embrace rejection easily. We want to belong. We want to be chosen. We want status. We do not want to be strangers, aliens, people for whom home is not and can never really be home. But Peter calls them elect exiles. Though that very election is what makes them exile, it does give them status, not because they are worthy, but by divine grace. The Old Testament usually refers to Jewish people as God's chosen people, but here from the beginning of the letter, he says that the church of Jesus Christ is God's chosen elect people. It is for this reason uh, that there is hope, and this hope is for a secured future. And this is what we will be looking at uh, for the rest of our time this morning. And there are three reasons that we can have a hope for a secure future. Because our hope is robust, because our hope is non-circumstantial, and because our hope is by divine appointment. Let me say that again, our hope is robust, our hope is non-circumstantial, and our hope is by divine appointment. Now let us look at the first one. Our hope is robust. In verses 3 to 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When describing the future that will be revealed in the last time, Peter refers to that as an inheritance given to us because we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He then describes this future in three ways. Uh, he says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and unfading. Uh, let's uh, look a little bit more closely at these uh, three words. Let's first look at imperishable. Uh, we live in a world where almost everything perishes. Our food, even our electronics, uh, our bodies all have shelf lives. Peter says this hope does not die or decay. In fact, it is a living hope not a dead hope. Despair in this life and a bleak view of the afterlife can kill hope. Is your view on the afterlife based on your performance? Well, what pressure? Is it based on karma? Well, good luck. Or maybe you don't believe in an afterlife at all. What a pity. Karen Job says this, in stark contrast, the Christian's new birth has been achieved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christian hope is ever-living because Christ, the ground of that hope, is ever-living. The present reality of the Christian's life is defined and determined by the reality of the past, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and is guarded into the future because Christ lives forevermore. Our hope is imperishable. It is robust in the sense of vitality. It lives. It is free from decay. 
Secondly, he says, our hope is undefiled. It is kept clean, pure, holy, kept from moral impureness. It will not be corrupted by your sin or anyone else's sin. It will not be stained, compromised, or lose its value. Uh, you won't have to wear masks or be vaccinated or use hand sanitizers in the future. It's undefiled. No one can mess it up for you. And it won't disappoint. It will meet your every expectations if your expectation is holiness. It is undefiled. It is robust in the sense of moral purity. Thirdly, he says it is unfading. It means that it will not age or run out of time, have a limit, or slowly disappear. Uh, time will not take its toll on this hope. It will last forever. It is eternal. It's not going to get old. You're never going to be too late or miss it. It is unfading. It is robust in the sense of time. He continues to say that it is kept for us in heaven. It is yours. It is booked for you. The reservation is made. No last-minute cancellation. No overbooking. It is not like trying to get a hotel room in Langkawi right now. It's uh, not worrying about it being too overcrowded or trying to secure yourself a place. It's like having your own room kept just for you, ready for whenever it's time for you to go. But not just that, it is guarded. No one can attack it. No one can destroy it. No one can conquer it. No one can steal it, take it away. It is secure. We can have hope for a secure future, for our hope is robust. It is perfect in vitality. It does not perish. It has freedom from death and decay. It is perfect in morality. It is not defiled. It has freedom from uncleanness and impurity. It is perfect in time. It never fades. It is everlasting. Now, just one thing. It does say in verse 5 that salvation is guarded by faith. Now, what kind of faith must it be? How do you know you have it? Oh, you look at this at our next point. Our hope is robust. And next, our hope is non-circumstantial. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do now not, not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Since this robust future is guarded by faith, Peter now explains what kind of faith it is. 
and he's thoughtful towards the situation of the audience. They are facing hardship. Uh, Thomas Schreiner, a commentator, writes this. We know from the letter that the readers faced suffering and persecution for their faith. The persecution represents a test and is compared to fire. And their suffering is compared to what believers faced in the rest of the Greco-Roman world. It's representative to what Christians were facing all over the world. Slaves and wives were mistreated, which probably included beatings and perhaps even sexual assault. Believers were slandered by unbelievers for failing to participate with them in idolatry and a whole range of sins. We see that in chapter 4. And thus, they were out of step socially with their society. Peter instructs them not to suffer for practicing evil, but they should gladly suffer as Christians, also in chapter 4. And many of these themes are present in our world right now. And maybe some of them may be present realities in your life. Just in the past year, 243 million have suffered, women have suffered from sexual or physical abuse. In Afghanistan, uh, the conflict has seen some 550,000 vulnerable people out of their homes and more fleeing every day. Christians are experiencing devastating persecution there in Afghanistan and in other countries. Even in Malaysia, there was news that some in the government would like to see the growth of non-Muslim religions to be deemed illegal. Now, the danger with thinking about persecution is to trivialize it. Either we trivialize it by saying our persecution is not as brutal as that faced by the audience of this letter or others around the world, thereby calling our suffering not real and not relevant. Uh, you can't see it that way. If the hope of the gospel sustained those in great trials, it can sustain us with lesser trials. You don't have to be beaten to be persecuted or to then hold on to the gospel of hope. On the other hand, taking minor struggles and equating them to the persecution that of, of that time or others is another way that we trivialize persecution. If your boss asks you to stay an extra two hours during the work week, friends, let's not dramatize this as injustice or workplace persecution. If you don't have enough money to buy yourself the latest iPhone 13, let's not call that a trial. And not being able to get to your favorite restaurant during the lockdown, that is not hardship. However, in KL, there is a flawed work culture due to idolatry of financial success and power. Many in the marketplace are treated like modern day slaves. And if you as a Christian value justice, church community and rest, and therefore you are set aside time for growing in the word, engaging community and worshiping our Lord and are thereby mocked, overlooked or ridiculed, that is persecution. If you had a hard time during this season, emotionally, mentally, or even financially because of not being able to work or having to take pay cuts, that is a trial. And if because of the lockdown, you were separated from friends and family, that is hardship. 
The trials that Peter is speaking into are persecutions faced because one is a Christian, but it also includes trials from living as Christians in a broken and sinful world. It's interesting that Peter's call to the suffering Christian is to endure, uh, not to take up arms. He does not say, stand up and fight. He doesn't say, retaliate. This is not a call to battle, but a call to rejoice in the trial. Well, why rejoice? Well, because if you're facing trials, then firstly, they're just for a little while. A little while, not that it's a short amount of time that you're experiencing them right now, but that in comparison to the eternity that you will receive, they will seem momentary. Secondly, he explains that the perseverance through these hardships tests that your faith is genuine. Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So trials, sufferings, prove our faith to be genuine and shapes our character and produces hope. It is this genuine, tested faith that sees you through hardships that will result in praise and honor and glory. So rejoice. Genuine faith does not waver at trials. In fact, it is refined to trials and proven genuine through trials. This is excellent news. Because if you find yourself in difficulty today, in trials or being persecuted or hardship, it is not a sign of God not being with you. That God favor, God's favor is not upon you. That you lack the blessing of God. In fact, Jesus says, blessed are you when others persecute you. And the Apostle Paul said that we would share in Christ's glory, provided we share in his sufferings in Romans. So the presence of suffering is scripturally more telling of God's work in your life than his absence in your life. So Peter says, rejoice and do not look at your circumstance, but look to what you can't see. At Jesus right now, you can't see him, but you love him. And believe in him, and that is what will carry you through every circumstance. It is not a call to battle, because Jesus has already won the victory. Therefore rejoice. Your love of Jesus is obtaining your out, the outcome of your faith, salvation. If true, genuine, tested faith is then not based on circumstance. And if it's that faith that guards your future, it means that our hope is non-circumstantial. For the faith that delivers it to us, that guards it, is non-circumstantial. Now, you might struggle with rejoicing. Uh, maybe you can't connect to this thought or emotion or feeling. You might say um, that you are experiencing a persecution or a trial so overwhelming that it seems impossible to have joy. 
Uh, Peter shows us that if you're not rejoicing with an inexpressible joy that trumps any circumstance, you might not understand the privilege that you have. In verses 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, search and inquired carefully. 11, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subject, uh, subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He's simply saying this. The Old Testament prophets were prophesying about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Their revelation and proclamations were not serving themselves, but you. They just got to talk about it. They just got to talk about a time when Jesus comes, but you are the recipient of the finished work of Christ. Those who now preach the gospel are declaring that same news to you. You are far more privileged than the prophets. He even says, angels long to look into this. The gospel of grace for sinful man is something that amazes angels that they desire to look at this good news all the time. Prophets could only speak about it. Angels can only look at it. But brothers and sisters, you get to be a part of it. Salvation is here, and you get to experience it if you put your faith in Jesus. This is a privilege that should lead you to rejoice. Christ's suffering have obtained for you a glory. Nothing can take that away from you. No persecution, no trial, no hardship, no mockery, no slander, nothing. We can rejoice because of our hope, because our hope is non-circumstantial. It will get you through any situation, and if necessary, even suffering. One commentator said this, Peter's main point is clear. Believers who suffer are not dashed to the ground by their troubles. On the contrary, they love Jesus Christ and rejoice in him, even though they have never seen him and do not see him now. Their lives are characterized by hope that fills the present with love and joy. Just one more quote. Edmund Clowney says it best when he says, Peter writes of a secure hope, a hope that holds the future in the present because it's anchored in the past. So our hope is robust. Nothing can destroy it. Our hope is non-circumstantial. Nothing can affect it. And lastly, our hope is by divine appointment. Now, I'm a firm believer uh, that even the dust motes are suspended in the air by divine appointment. But that's a side conversation that you can have this Wednesday or Friday in our 20 Christian Beliefs Equip Group when we learn about election. What we see here throughout the passage is that God is orchestrating everything. God elects the exiles. 
It is by his divine appointment that they are exiles and that they are chosen to be his people. In verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gets the credit. It's according to his great mercy. And it's he that has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, the language of being born to a new life in the New Testament should be clear. No one is responsible for their first birth. It's what happened to you. In the same way, it's for your second birth. It's what happens to you. In verses 4 and 5, it says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. By whose power? By God's power. Not by your strength, but by God's. Even in verse 11, it says that it was the Spirit of Christ, which is simply another way of saying the Holy Spirit, that indicated and predicted the suffering of Christ. And in verse 12, it is the Holy Spirit that helps people proclaim the gospel. So even the fact that we hear the good news is by divine appointment. However, the most apparent portion of this text by which we see that our hope is by divine appointment is in the Trinitarian reference in verse 2. It says that we are chosen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. He knew from the beginning of time who would be the elect exiles. And then it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit in us that matures our faith to a type of faith that will not waver in persecution and that will stand the genuineness test of trials. Again, it's not us mustering up power through the will that grows faith, that perseveres, but it's the Holy Spirit in us that keeps us. And keeps us from doing what? Or keeps us in doing what? Well, obeying Jesus. Jesus, who cleansed us by the sprinkling of his blood. The sprinkling of the blood here is a reference to Exodus 24, uh, 3 to 8. Uh, the covenant was inaugurated with sacrifices in which blood is shed and sprinkled on the altar. The people pledged obedience to the Lord of the covenant. Moses then sprinkled the people with blood, stating, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. The blood of the covenant signifies the forgiveness and cleansing the people needed that to stand in the proper uh, relation with God. See, we all sin, and the wages of sin is death. And as a consequence, we will perish. Our sin defiles us, and we are no longer pure, unable to be in God's holy presence. And because of that, we all fade away in time. We all only have a limited time. Our hearts are like a wound-up clock. There's only so many ticks we have, and one day it will stop. Left to our own, we will not have any hope. It is because Jesus, who was imperishable, and then became perishable and paid our penalty of death on behalf, that we who are perishable can become imperishable.
is because Jesus, who is pure, took on our sin and shed his blood to cleanse us, that we who are defiled can be clean and enter into God's holy presence. It's because Jesus, who was outside of time, came into time and died and rose again, that we, who have limited time allotted to us, can rise again to, etern to an eternity. Believers enter the covenant by faith through the sprinkled blood of Christ, that is his cleansing sacrifice. This faith will see us through any circumstance and deliver us by the sanctifying power of the spirit into a secured future that is robust, that won't perish and is undefiled and unfading. No trial, no circumstance, no person, no power, no sin. There's nothing that you can do to mess up the future that God has appointed for you. Why? Because it's not about who you are or what you have done. It's about whose you are and what he has already done. Brothers and sisters, you are God's chosen elect. Friends, there is hope in the valley, a hope for a secure future. It is robust, it is non-circumstantial, and it is divinely appointed. May that grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, though we grieve various trials, we rejoice, for you chose us. Your Son redeemed us, and the Spirit keeps us and sanctifies us and delivers us into this secure future that is being guarded for us by your power. When we find hope, when we find hope fleet in our longing, in our darkness, help us to hold fast to this wondrous mystery that Christ took on flesh to ransom us, bringing many to glory. Help us in the present to look to the past that secured our future for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.